0: Hey everyone, welcome to the 15th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Dr. Larry Lauer, the lead mental skills coach for USDA player development and one of the top 100 most influential sports educators in America, according to the Institute for International Sport. On today's episode, we discuss how to be resilient, managing match nerves, and what separates a pros mentality from the everyday player. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Larry, welcome to the pod.
1: Uh, Jonathan, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.
0: I'm really excited. This is a topic that fascinates me as a coach and as a person in general. You're listed on the USDA website as a mental skills coach. So can you kind of briefly describe what you do and who you do it with?
1: Yeah, thanks. We go by many names, mental toughness coach, sports psychologist, mental conditioning coach. But my role is to help prepare our tennis players mentally for competition and to give them the skill sets and the knowledge, the perspectives, the support needed to get that done knowing that they're going into a pressure environment, right? Uh, Tennis is a tough sport. Uh, A lot of unforced errors. You're playing in front of people, and you're the only one on your side of the court. You're not able to be coached in many cases. So it's definitely a a, can be a high-pressure, high-mistake environment. And so the more we can prepare our athletes uh, to deal with that, uh, to be resilient, uh, to be confident in what they do, to commit to their games and just compete, Every single point as best as they can. Then we're doing something great. And I think that's, that's what I try to do on a daily basis. I'm at the national campus in Orlando, Florida, working with USTA player development. So I see, um, fortunate to see the, some of the best players in the country, uh, coming through from juniors to young players becoming pros and pros. And so, and yet really we got to do a lot of teaching. You know, it's not like they come in fully. Uh, developed you know so we have to make sure that we're we're teaching and we're developing those skills and those ways of thinking and doing things that will allow them to be successful as a pro and um, that that's really what my focus is every day
0: so one thing i used to always ask i, I kind of ask every coach now even on the podcast but as a college coach i'd ask others and i'd say well what what are you interested in like what what two or three skills do you want your players to have and two of them were always some version of athleticism and movement. And hey, I want them to be mentally tough. Mm
1: -hmm. And then I would
0: say, well, what does mentally tough mean? And that's where all the answers would be different. So I'm curious how you would describe mental toughness.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I was just talking to a group of coaches on campus yesterday and how mental toughness is defined in many, many different ways. And I, I look at it as this ability to be able to Go into an environment, which is a tennis match and to be committed to your game, to fight through uh, different obstacles, to be resilient and adapt to the changing environment and, and find your way through it. To me, someone who's mentally tough is determined. They give their best effort, even if things aren't going well, they can deal with hardships and work through them. So mental toughness is, is not just being able to take on being extremely physical and and being able to do really hard lifts or long runs or being able to play a long match, physical match, right? That's part of it. There's also a lot of this emotional and and, and mental part of it where you endure these things and you can stay with your goals and keep fighting and and stay focused. Because tennis, as I tell my players, is actually a really messy game. There's a lot of mistakes that happen. You know, we have Two ways to define errors, unforced errors and forced errors. There's a lot of errors. And uh, how are you going to manage that part of it and stay confident and committed to your game? So, yeah, mental toughness gets defined in a million different ways. But more for me, I like to break it down, Jonathan, and get into things like resilience and commitment and acceptance and these ideas, which for the players get a lot more specific and, and actually help them to understand what to do.
0: You just mentioned resilience. Uh, What does that mean to you? And then how do you help a player become more resilient?
1: Yeah, so resilience to me is an ability to adapt to a situation, to bounce back from adversity, back to form or back even better than you were. Um, So resilience is really this quality that does require that there's some form of adversity, surprise, failure, something, right? for it to exist, and you're bouncing back from that. You're coming back to what makes you successful, uh, whether that's your game plan or the way you play or whatever it might be. Um, resilience really is founded on three things. First, to be resilient, you do have to have adversity, and you want to be able, as a tennis player or any performer, uh, to be able to have really good ways of thinking about this adversity you're experiencing, the stress, how you're going to deal with it. So uh, things like, hey, there's going to be something happens in every match that I have to deal with and that's normal and I'm totally fine with it. Uh, that That's having a resilient kind of mentality or approach to it. Second thing or the, the second pillar of resilience would be that you have to be skilled. You have to have certain skills like uh, the skillfulness of visualization or imagery, the way you talk to yourself, your self-talk, the way you set goals, you know, how, your ability to focus, your ability to energize yourself or relax. So these skills allow someone to be more resilient or if you're not very good at it, be less resilient. And finally, the third pillar is support. We don't expect our players to do this alone. So you need support if you're going to deal with adversity, you know, negative experiences, negative situations and players have to become open and aware of how to communicate with their coaches about what they're feeling what they're dealing with with their parents with their family with other professionals that they're working with strength coaches athletic trainers physios mental coaches and working through that and sharing and really taking responsibility for how they're going to deal with the situation whatever that they're in you know what what I would hope to see, you know, in terms of developing a resilient tennis player is that you, you develop someone who is is really good at bouncing back. So they're not going to go on long streaks of losing points, right, or, or playing away from their best game style. They're going to bounce back pretty quickly. Uh, so they're going to stop long streaks of performing poorly. And they're also going to have an attitude where they're willing to work through things uh where they're willing to figure things out, problem solve and and to keep pushing back. So you know that's kind of what we're looking for. How do you develop that? I think resilience is kind of trait based, but it's also a skill. And so people have levels of it that you know maybe that are socialized in them or born into them, but also we can develop it. And I believe we do that by obviously those three pillars I mentioned, developing those perspectives, that willingness to take on adversity head on and deal with it, those skills, those supports, we get that in place, we need to put the players in an environment where we push them and we challenge them and put them in different situations that really are are challenging for them, whether it's dealing with being fatigued or conditions or game styles of their opponents or scoreboard situations or whatever it may be, different stressors and having them work through it. Uh you to do that you need to again teach them different routines that allow them to be resilient so you don't just throw them into the fire and say hey good luck. You know okay like with our with the kids that we work with we start pretty simple, you know, teaching them how to do breathing to quiet their mind of all the noise that's in there and then to focus on something they believe in, something they're going to commit to. We call breathe and believe. So you start simple um, and then you can build upon that with different concepts. But to access this resilience, you need to be able to give players the skill sets necessary, understand where they're coming from, their histories, their successes, their failures, their strengths, their areas they need to improve, and train them and train them in pressure environments. We always talk about at player development that honestly, practice in many ways should be harder than matches for them. Uh, and that helps build up that resilience to the stuff that they're going to face in the match. So it's a very long process, as you can imagine, Jonathan, because you coach players and um, it takes time and you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have times where they don't show resilience. That doesn't mean that they aren't resilient anymore. That just means in that moment they weren't able to adapt or bounce back. And, and that happens to the best of us. But all of us have the ability to be resilient and that's the beauty of
0: it. You mentioned kind of making practice harder than a match, or kind of creating that adversity in that environment. How would I know as a coach if I'm making my practice not challenging enough, or I'm challenging them too much to where they can't handle it? How would I know that?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a tremendous question, and I would love to hear the the answers of a lot of great coaches to that question. In my belief, and what I would be looking for is you know this challenge is at, a, at an appropriate level where we know what you're capable of and then we make it a little bit harder, right? So we step it up just a little bit. And what we'd hope to see is that there's some struggle, but you can find your way through it by deploying certain mental skills, by using your routines, by decisions you make around your tennis, right? Your tactics, uh, by working hard, you can get through it, right? I think when it's too easy, the person you'll see gets bored uh, they become uh, distracted they become disinterested and when it's too hard they can become anxious and stressed and eventually disappointed because angry disappointed frustrated because they're unable to have success so we want to challenge our players at an optimal level that means there's going to be some failure but there also needs to be enough success that they stay motivated and stay pushing forward uh and finding that honestly the optimal level is a bit of an art right it's not like you can just have a formula and say well this is exactly how you do it so you have to have an understanding of where your player is and what they're capable of push them and then see how they respond are they able to work their way through it if they're not maybe we need to step it back a little bit if they are working through it pretty easy we need to challenge them a little bit more we need to make this a little bit harder uh, and, and that's how I, I tend to look at it.
0: And another thing you mentioned earlier about the adversity was kind of your relationship with it and problem solving. I can't remember where I heard this, but uh, the guy was kind of saying like, D- deep down, don't you really want like problems or challenges? Like if you were playing a video game and there was no obstacle, you literally just walked across the screen and got to the end and you won. You probably wouldn't play that video game very often. So yeah. he was kind of saying, hey, look at it as... Challenges are fun. That you seek them out. It's it's fun to overcome them. Is that kind of a healthy way to view it, or or how would you view problems or obstacles in a match?
1: I couldn't agree more. Uh, if we can embrace these obstacles or challenges, uh, then they become things to overcome and and to figure out, which can be a lot of fun. And I think what we're talking about also is a lot to do, like with a growth mindset, Carol Dweck. In this idea that when face with a challenge, do I dig in and try to problem solve and be willing to give the effort to figure it out? Or do I kind of go away because it's not easy for me and I would prefer not to give that effort and potentially fail, right? So um, the hallmark of someone who's resilient, I believe, is that they have a growth mindset and they, they want to try to figure these things out. And, and again, it's not like, we have that hundred percent of the time, because if you said to me, are you resilient, Larry? I'd like to think I'm a resilient person. But when it comes to plumbing, I'm probably not very resilient. You know what I mean? Like if something happens and I get frustrated, like I don't know how to deal with this. And I have to call the plumber versus, you know, something else that I'm, I love or passionate about. And I know a lot about, uh, I'm going to be far more resilient. So uh, us as a human species, we can't just categorize someone as resilient or not. It depends sort of on the situation, where I'm at, um, how I'm dealing with things. Uh, you know, so that's, that's something to consider. But there, I was just talking with a player recently, uh, actually a wheelchair tennis player, a great player, you know, and, and he was changing his chair, you know, so he got a brand new chair and, and, you know, when when he's doing that, he has to make all these little adjustments to the chair. And I'm like, well, how does that feel to you? Because probably you're not moving as well and playing as well sometimes. Like, yeah, but it's really fun to try and figure this out because I know when I do, I'm going to be that much better. And it's like, hmm, that's a growth mindset. A challenge. A lot of people be like, no, I just like what I have. I don't want to touch it. He's looking for that one, two percent by adjusting his equipment. And, and he's really excited about learning and figuring that out. And to me, that, typified that growth mindset and that shows someone who is being resilient because I'm sure he's going through some practices where he doesn't perform as well and he's just adapting he's he's adapting to not only himself but also his chair to get better and better
0: I want to switch gears I I asked a lot of my parents and players and on Instagram and a topic that kept coming up was nerves I get very nervous when I play Um, and everyone maybe has their own reason for it. So it might be difficult. Uh, But generally speaking, kind of what is your basic approach to helping a player handle those match nerves?
1: Yeah, that, that seems to be the number one thing that we hear. In terms of nerves, what we try to do is to first understand what their experience is. When, when you say nerves, what do you mean? When is your body telling you what, what's going on in your mind? I have a simple system to try to understand what's going on. And that is, what are the situations where you feel nervous? What, what are things that are going on in your environment and within you? How then are you perceiving those things? How are you thinking about those things? Right? Which is an extremely important question because for some players, playing someone who's ranked lower than has a lower UTR isn't really that much of a bother to them. And for others, it's an anxiety provoking, right? I can't lose this person to rank lower than me. You know, so you have to know not only the situation, but how they're viewing it, because that's the key to stress and anxiety is how do I view it? And, and then how does that then impact what's going on with my body and what's going on with my emotions, right? Because when we're stressed, when we're anxious, typically our emotions tend to fluctuate quite, quite a bit. Uh, it also affects our physical bodies. People think about it, like fight or flight, right? So muscular tension, narrowing of the focus, adrenaline rush, cortisol, you name it, right? There's a lot of things going on in the body, blood flowing through the extremities, all these different things that players talk about. These are symptoms of how you're thinking in a giving environment. Then there's your behavior. After all this, you finally get to the behavior. Well, what's happening? Well, I play passive or I overplay or, you know, I slow down in between points. My feet slow down during the point. I start making really bad decisions because I'm uncomfortable. I try to get out of points. I'm hitting drop shots or, you know, whatever it might be. So we have to define those four buckets. What's the situation? How are you thinking about it? What are you feeling physically and emotionally? And what's it do for your behavior? which in this case is a lot to do with their tennis behavior that then feeds back into your, your, your situational demands, right? Depending on how you deal with it. So once we're able to put kind of the information into those four boxes, that allows the players to begin to understand that, Oh, okay. I might be able to do something about this, right? Cause it starts to organize the chaos in their mind. Cause anybody who's ever been through a very stressful situation, like every person on this planet, knows when we're in that situation it's really hard to organize our thoughts to get clarity we try to bring clarity to the situation what actually is going on from your perspective and that's where we start asking more questions like well when you've handled your stress or your nerves well what have you done how have you thought how have you played and trying to rely on their past history Well this we might also um, talk to their coach to get his or her perspective as well of what they see to fill in those four buckets, but also what can work for that young person. It's very helpful to know from a tennis perspective some of the tactical things they're doing or what they see in their movement, for example. But getting a clear picture, we can start to say, okay, well, here's why you get nervous. What do you control and what don't you control? we got to accept what we don't control because that stuff, because it's outside of our control, we can't change it. And we got to deal with the things we do control, right? So coaches always say, control the controllables. Well, okay, what are those things, and how are you going to influence them? And typically, what I find, Jonathan, then is we have to work on the thoughts because the thoughts are the drivers of your nerves. It's the way you're looking at things, right? So if I am in a match and I'm worried about what people on the sideline are thinking, it's making me nervous. It's a matter of your focus being off. You're focusing on Something that's irrelevant to the match and it's making you nervous because you're thinking about how they're judging you, how they're evaluating you. So if we can move the focus away from outside of the court to something inside the court, uh, we have a much better chance of controlling those nerves. It may be something that's coming from within or something that's focused outside. We have to kind of figure that out. We try to figure out what are those thoughts that are creating the nerves and typically those thoughts, um, Relate to, you know, what if, what if, I shoulds, stuff like that, fears, trying to dissect those and realize a lot of times these thoughts aren't very rational. They're not very realistic. So we try to break them down. Or maybe you're making a big deal out of something that is small. Like we talk about, like losing a point. It's one point. You might play 120, 140 points. Like one out of 120 is not that big a deal, right? So let's just move on. Let's not make it, a big deal of one, so it affects four, or eight, or twelve.
0: Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, something as simple as losing a point. Right, you can make that mm-hmm. a big deal. And pe- people who know me just tell me I have the emotions of a robot. Like I, I am, <laughs> I am very flatlined. Right, so okay, if I lose a point, I'm like, all right, well, was that match point? It wasn't. Uh, then I'm fine. I didn't lose the match. If, if I came out here to win the match and I haven't lost it yet, I'm all good. That's how I see it. I understand that a vast majority of people don't see it that way. So three all, no ads seems like this epic deal. And I'm thinking to myself, you got a set and a half left either way. Like we're, we're all fine. How do you help someone look at that big picture or minimize things like that, that they blow up in their minds? Is there something for that instance that you can you can utilize?
1: Yeah, I think first is awareness, right? Which I was talking about previously, being aware of those kinds of thoughts that are going on. Secondly, is looking at past history, right? You know, looking at situations and saying, well, how many times have you been in this situation and lost a point and been fine, right? Missed an overhead and came back and were fine or double folded three times and come back and won. So we try to point out evidence that goes against their fears. But the reality is those fears are based on uncertainties, right? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. In your mind, you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm just going to keep working and, and do the best I can. I'm not going to worry about, you know, this beat. It's not match point. Just keep playing. I think for a lot of players, uh, they worry about, Is am I starting to play bad? Am I starting to lose my way? Like, am I going to lose this match? And they start jumping ahead too much. And so being able to bring it back to the present moment, right? Bring it back to the present moment through, again, breathing is a great way to get back into the present moment, but also through acceptance or being neutral to the things that happen to us, right? You know, I've talked to players like this, like it's a one ball, one point mentality. Like, you know, just being able to say like, yeah, that was just one ball. I missed. Yeah, it's one ball. One ball. Off we go. And if you can do that, then you can start to, um, I think be a lot more resilient to those mistakes. So I find also with other players setting smaller goals to help keep that focus more present, uh, helps. So it's say, okay, let's just focus on something smaller that is more in the realm of where we're at right now. Like this game. Okay. Can we get, you know, three first serves in, uh, you know, and try to break it down a little smaller instead of jumping so far ahead. So. You do need to occupy that performer's mind with something, and so sometimes giving them a goal that's much more immediate and present uh, is a way to get them competitive, but on something they have far more control over. So certainly a challenge, uh, to say the least. And someone with that's like you is a lot easier to work with sometimes. But uh, you know the reality is that when we have this really high standard about how we want to perform we can be judging ourselves a lot as the performance goes along. And, and that certainly uh, is something that you have to learn how to manage.
0: Just listening, obviously there seems like there's so many techniques and so many things to be aware of. Uh, what percentage of your developmental time? So let's say a junior player who plays, I don't know, 12 to 15 hours a week. What percentage of their developmental time do you think they should be dedicating to building these mental skills?
1: That's a great question and probably one your listeners are very interested in because what's it going to take for me to develop this kind of mental strength or toughness or whatever you want to call it. First and foremost, I think, is understand that your brain is always at work. And so if you can get your brain working for you as you're doing your tennis or your strength and conditioning or whatever you might be doing, you're using your brain and you're training your brain. So. You want to be engaged in everything you're doing, being present, having a purpose, having great positive energy. If you do that on a consistent basis, you're training your brain to be the way you want to be when you perform. So a lot of people don't think about it that way, right? Jonathan, it's like, okay, how much time am I doing certain things? And and I understand that, but you're always your brain's always involved. So make it work for you as you go throughout your day. Now, what people might find a little bit more Practical or specific is that if you're training, let's say 15 hours, right? So you train five days a week and you're doing, let's say 15 hours on court. You should be doing something mentally to get mentally prepared for at least five, 10 minutes just to get yourself ready for practice. And that might be journaling your goals that could be breathing and becoming present. That could be visualizing or imagining being successful your goals in that practice, or things you might deal with and overcoming them. That could be you know, reading your notes and, and kind of getting the self-talk organized. You know, this is the way I'm going to do things when I'm out there, and being very goal focused. That can take five ten minutes. That's not asking a lot, right? Now, you do need time to work at these skills too. So, to me, you know, it, let's say you. Pre-practice, you did five, 10 minutes. After practice, you spent five, 10 minutes maybe journaling how you did in your practice. So, okay, maybe, maybe now we're at 15 to 20 minutes a day, right? Maybe, you know, if you're really serious, you tack on another 10 minutes of skill development. Maybe you're practicing your visualization or or some other skill. And then as you go throughout your practice, you're using your routines, right? So I mentioned that breathe and believe routine. Anytime you find yourself distracted, overly emotional, and out of control, making poor decisions, losing energy, there's a number of different things that can happen in the practice, even in drills. You go to your breathe and belief technique, you're now practicing your mental game, right? So you're getting more reps, which is what you need to do. We call this our daily mental practice. So while you might say, okay, I'm doing 20 minutes per day, pre and post practice, and that would be great, you're actually engaging your brain a lot. So to the listeners, if you can put in 15, 20 minutes a day, you know, specifically with mental training exercises, maybe you're doing meditation or breathing or something, you're doing great, especially if you're then feeding that into what you're doing in practice. So whatever you're doing outside of the court should make sense to you for what you're doing in the court. So if I'm playing points and off the court, I'm doing breathing exercises, how am I bringing that into the performance? Well, I'm going to take deep breaths as the point ends, deep diaphragmatic or belly breaths, bring my heart rate down, feel a little bit more comfortable, clear my mind so I can think clearly about the next point. You now have used breathing to enhance your performance. Or maybe I'm working on imagery, right? And I'm imagining my best surplus wands or return plays, whatever it might be, or my game strategy. I'm practicing that off the court. You're in a changeover. You take 30 seconds to imagine how you want to play in that next game using those things you practice off the court, right? Or even short bursts of imagery between points. All right, I'm going to serve here, next ball there, and I can see it in my mind. Boom, boom. That's really a great way to be committed and connected in the present to your game. So get your mind engaged in what you're doing. Use routines as you train and as you practice. And if you put a little time in to get your mind, your brain ready before you go and to reflect and learn on it after you're done, I think that that would be great quality mental training. And It might feel like 15, 20 minutes a day, five times a week, uh, when in reality, it's the whole time you're doing your, your tennis.
0: This might be a tough question for you to answer, but anyone who's been nervous, including myself, knows that even if I'm hitting the ball great leading into a tournament, If I'm very scared when I play, all those shots eventually fail when I'm nervous, right? And so we know that the brain and the mind and the mindset can greatly impact our level of play. We all acknowledge that. And yet I would guess most people don't spend that much time either utilizing their brain through practice or off the court, even though they acknowledge that it's super important. So why do you think people avoid working on these mental skills and instead choose to focus on forehand technique or my serve and that that's what's going to do it for me. Why don't they fully commit to the mental skills side of their development?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Jonathan, and I think one because they don't understand it. They can't get their arms around it, right? Like if I want to get stronger, I can look up some exercises and go to the gym or I can go find a strength coach and get some help, right? at a local gym and get what I need and get a plan. Mental training hasn't been that easy for people to access, to be honest. You know, we haven't done a great job. We're getting better at it, providing concrete, practical ways to train the mind. And and that's why we wrote the USDA Mental Skills and Drills Handbook. We wrote that specifically to give people exercises they can use and they would understand why they were doing them. That That, to me, you know, is extremely important, is is understanding the why behind it. And I think a lot of times people just can't wrap their arms around it, right? If they don't understand it, they don't know how to get started. They don't know if it's actually working because you can't, your brain doesn't get bigger necessarily, right? You can't feel your brain, you know, really expanding because you you are doing imagery. So, well, how do you know if it's it's helping? Well, do you feel a greater sense of commitment to, or clarity to what you're doing, right? To your purpose, to your game? Are you staying engaged and focused as you perform, right? Uh, do you commit to your game under pressure, even though maybe you are having doubts about your ability to perform? So these are things we got to look at. So I think that's the main thing. Uh, there obviously are other reasons. you know, Some people just don't see it as that important. And they believe that if you can just perfect your technique, then it doesn't really matter, which is untrue. If it didn't matter, then Roger Federer would make every single shot, right? Like he wouldn't be bothered by match situations. So I think we've seen him even as great as he is, that there's times where it gets to him. So performance fluctuates naturally. Sometimes we're a little bit better. Sometimes we're average. Sometimes we're a little bit worse. You know, you you have to expect that and accept that. And so, you know, as a performer, how am I dealing with those fluctuations? So it's not just a technical piece that, oh, well, if I just hit it the same way every time, I'll never have to deal with that. It just, it doesn't, doesn't hold up, doesn't hold water. And I think most people who compete understand that.
0: We're going to finish up with some Instagram questions. And honestly, a lot of these you've in some way or another have already answered them, at least in my eyes, but maybe these people will hear these specific examples and and be able to apply them more. First question from this Instagram follower is how do you trust things that you've been working on in practice and then try to apply that into a real match?
1: Yeah. I think you, you try to create practice situations where there's pressure and you play through those situations, playing those strokes as best as you can. Uh, too often the difference in the perception of the players is too great, right? Like practice, I'm doing my thing, I'm having fun, whatever, whatever. Maybe I'm not fully engaged. Matches, I'm like this. And it's like going from zero to a hundred. You've got to level that out, or actually, like you said before, make practice harder. How do you do that? That's a re- that part is challenging. How you do that? You know, uh, rewarding yourself for doing certain things in practice, or taking away certain things if you don't do what you want to do. Right? Like, okay, my plan is to go out to dinner, uh, but if I don't do this, I'm not going out to dinner. If I don't allow myself to hit my stroke, I'm not going to reward myself. Right? Maybe you apply consequences. I got to clean every court. If I'm unwilling to go after my shots or if you know I don't perform again, I, we don't like to use physical punishment or exercise punishment. So I try to stay away from that, just bring it, putting that out there, but you gotta, you've got to create more stress and practice and work your way through it. So you have a closer approximation to what's going to happen in a tournament match. Then when you get into tournament match, you know, a lot of times you have these great routines and I talk to players about this between points, like I'm ready to do it. I feel ready, i persuaded myself, and then I go in and I play tight. So once the point starts, a lot of times what you need to do is stop thinking and just play. Just allow the training to come out. Galway's idea from Inner Game of Tennis of bounce hit, right? Just to create a mantra in your mind to shut down all that noise and just focus on the ball. You can use a mantra, really try to focus in on the ball. Maybe you're timing your breathing with your movements and your hitting. These are all ways to quiet the mind so you can just focus on responding to the ball that's coming to you. You know, so you gotta have, especially if you're a high performance player, you gotta have things you do to prepare and you gotta have do things that you are doing while you execute.
0: Uh, here's what I actually used to struggle with as a junior, but what is your best advice for learning to stay focused? The match can last for three hours. And so you might have a simple tactic that you're supposed to be utilizing over and over and over again for three straight hours. And people, a lot of times go away from that. What is your best advice for learning how to maintain that level of focus for two matches a day, three matches a day, three days in a row? How do you do that?
1: That's another tremendous question. Uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but you got to practice that way. So you got to practice for three hours and hold that focus maybe you know when you're in a training week you have days where you play two practice matches right or you play in a singles and a dubs just because you want to simulate an environment and work through it you know experience is a great teacher especially experience with really good uh, skills and good concepts in your mind of how to do things but you want to try and put yourself in that same situation in practice so when you you get to it in on a match day it's not that big a difference. I've been through it, and that's one of the greatest things. When you know, I've trained for this, I know how to handle it, then your mind can just settle down and you can focus on performance.
0: How does someone stop spiraling or getting upset after they feel like they were cheated on a line call or something very unfair happened to them in a match?
1: Yeah, we get this question a lot. You know, Parents especially are asked this question a lot. So it's really hard for them to watch this go down, and I understand it. It's not easy. Look, I mean, a lot of these things I talk about, I probably make it sound like, hey, snap your fingers, it happens. It's not easy and there's no guarantees. But when it comes to something like that, understand again, first of all, that it's one point. I'm not going to allow one point to affect the rest, even the next one if possible. So if that person is cheating on purpose, and a lot of times they're not, honestly, human beings are not very good at calling lines. It's be realistic. Um, especially when you're trying to move. and Then that brings me to the idea that, okay, what's happening here is that if they can get one point by cheating but turn it into four because of my response to the cheating, they're winning the game. I don't want to let that happen. So I'm going to get back to my focus, my routine, so really good routines in this situation, and get back to work. Now, one... One way of looking this, framing this, Jonathan, that's really helped me help junior players is this idea that if the person's truly cheating, that means that they can't, they believe they can't beat you straight up. And so use that to empower you to be relentless with your game, to stay with your game. So when they cheat you, now maybe you have to move your targets in, maybe you call an official to watch a court, all well and good, but you need to stay focused. And you need to be relentless with your game. Give them more of your game. Clearly, they they um, feel the pressure and feel like they need to cheat. Uh, Maybe they're doing it instrumentally to get something out of you. Do not let them get that out of you. Control your response. Empower yourself to bring back your game. Because the best feeling is not cheating them back, which always leads to more cheating from the other player. Almost always. It's when you control yourself, play your game, and beat them, even though they're cheating.
0: I love the way you frame that, that they don't think they can beat me straight up. I really like that. I also find it funny, you know, if I'm with a parent or I'm watching, if the opponent makes a bad call, the player was cheating. If their own child made a bad call, ah, they might have missed one. Yeah, that was a pretty pretty fast serve. I always find that funny. I mean, like you said, a lot of times it's not cheating. One thing, you tell me what you think about this, but at Duke, when I was coaching, I mean, college tennis line calls can be horrific. And so I would tell players, I'd say, hey, let's just budget in that you're going to get at least four. So don't, don't don't be surprised when you you hit an ace in the fourth game of the match and it's a tight call and it may have been in, it may have been out. But you, you're going to get at least four of them. So let's not be stunned when one happens. What are your thoughts on that approach?
1: Well, no, I, I like it, Jonathan. I think that it helps people be more accepting of the reality you know, that you're lowering expectations for everyone should be fair and things should be perfect. Guess what? They're not. So if we just allow for some of that and we understand it can happen and it's not going to blow up our game, that we can still perform, then I think you can work through those situations. But it's a tough situation because you feel like someone's taking something from you. They're stealing from you. It's very offensive and I get it. So you've got to depersonalize it it can't be something personal it has to be something you're like you know what maybe they just missed it or you know this stuff just happens like coach said so i'm just give that one a pass right the more you can downplay those things and just focus on your game i believe it's better um because no one wins and we have this arms race where you cheat me i cheat you and then eventually it's in the middle of the box and it's out and and then it's just it becomes Honestly, it's not fun anymore for anyone.
0: Last Instagram question here, but uh, generally speaking, what is the biggest difference in a mindset or the mental toughness of a pro versus a junior or amateur player?
1: Hmm. Another great question. I would say that pros, let me try and think of how I want to put this. They typically have a greater level of understanding that these matches are going to go back and forth when rafa and joker play they know that they're not going to go out and dominate so they're more accepting and resilient of the things that don't go their way and they're always problem solving trying to play the game to figure out how to beat this you know amazing opponent i think the juniors because they're not emotionally mature yet they're not 25 their brains aren't fully cooked they think that everything relates back to them and how they're hitting the ball. And if they're losing, then they must be doing something bad, which is not necessarily the case. That's why you see, you know, in the pros, a lot of the matches, the sets are close. In junior matches, I feel often you look at the scores, it's a close first set, and the second set goes by so fast for the opponent who won the first set. You don't see that from pros. If they lose the first set, Man, you got something to deal with in a second. They're coming right back at you, probably with better tennis. And that's something we talk about a lot is, uh, you know, really that understanding that tennis is a back-and-forth sport. You know, it's not a sport of perfect. It's not gymnastics. It's not figure skating. You know, it's back and forth. There's going to be a lot of mistakes. you got to navigate your way through it, and that's all well and good. And you're not always going to play good, and, and that's understandable. You're not always going to take the shot when it's there. You just have to do it enough to find your way through the match. And I think that releases a lot of the need for perfection and this idea that there's a way it should be all the time when in reality you know, your opponent's out there actually that make it difficult for you to do the things you want to do so to frustrate you. So when they start to take on those ideas and accept them and get really committed to what they value in their game and in themselves as competitors, now you're really dealing with something But The pros typically, especially the ones that are performing well mentally, they've dealt with that. They also understand expectations better. Like juniors, and I was kind of diving into this, expect that, well, I should always make that ball. That's kind of an immature perspective, right? But we expect that from younger players. Pros are going to say like, look, okay, there's going to be some variance in the machine. I understand that. So I'm going to accept that I missed that ball by this much. But they're also very clear on when they need to adjust, right? They're not just going to sit there and keep missing and say, "Okay, I need to bring my targets down." You hit with more spin, whatever it is. Whereas a junior would be like, "Why am I not making this shot? What's wrong with me today? Why can't I play?" Pros, especially ones that are mainly performing well, aren't doing that. They're just making adjustments as needed, but they're very clear that they understand that these little things are going to happen when you're playing against a really good player. Emotionally, the biggest difference, honestly, Jonathan, I'm sure you've seen is just emotionally, juniors aren't there. Another big piece, and this is more from like research we see, is that elite athletes, pros, what they focus on is different than amateurs. A pro, for example, in return to serve, is going to lock her eyes into this small space where the racket's going to make contact with the ball. The amateur's going to be looking at the whole body of the server. Right. So elite performers have learned how to eliminate the distractions, the other cues and just focus on the relevant cues based on what they need to do. So their focusing skills are better as well. And it would go probably for a lot of juniors, although the best juniors start picking up on that early. So I think you know, the ones that are going to eventually become pros. Um So th- those are some of the big things that I see, um, but there's a lot of differences. Pros have more elaborate routines and pr- preparation routines where juniors, you know, they don't, you know, and they're not as good at regulating their behavior. So there's so many different ways we can look at it, you know, in different ways where there's just maturation development You to occur.
0: Like I said earlier, this is my favorite topic. and. I swear to god i'll probably listen to this like five times back because you gave us a ton of information which was uh awesome for people who are interested in what you've been telling them today where where can they find you and you have your own podcast like where can they get more of this information from you
1: yeah thanks for mentioning that we have the compete like a champion podcast you can find it anywhere you can download podcasts Uh, you can go to the usda website go to the podcast page and that podcast is more of a sports science podcast coming from a psychological perspective. So we do get into other things like uh, strength development or movement or nutrition or injuries and sports specialization. And, and we, so we, do, we do a lot of different things on that podcast, but it all comes back to this base sort of the psychology of, of high performance or low performance. So we're definitely trying to get a lot of material out there. Um, you know, so definitely, you know, look us up on on the website. Uh, you can Google those lunch and learns, uh, net webinars USTA. Like I said, Tuesday night, 7 30 Eastern, we got Dr. Jim Lair, who's the pioneer of a lot of this stuff, the trailblazer that I'm talking about today. So you got to give him credit. Um, you know, that's where you kind of can find a lot of our stuff.
0: Well, we appreciate your time greatly, and I'm so thankful you came on. I know I've already learned a couple things, and like I said, on my fifth re-listen of this uh this recording, I'll probably pick it all up. But thanks again for joining us and, and hopefully we can have you back on later in the year.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, John.
0: All right. I want to thank Larry for joining us today. There are so many mental skills that you can learn and we touched on quite a few of them today. My favorite thing that Larry mentioned was at the end when he was talking about opponents cheating or making bad line calls against you. I love how he framed it that they obviously don't think they can beat you straight up. Just listening to that, it immediately gave me a shot of confidence in my own game when I view that insecurity and doubt from my opponent's point of view. I really, really like that. I hope you adopt that mindset and it should help you be more patient and calm the next time adversity strikes in a match. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.